Amen, friends. Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Our sermon text for today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It's the second half of chapter 1, continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. You might notice, if you have an ESV Bible, that the section title for this section that we're going to look at today is The Birth of Jesus Christ. That is actually a little bit deceptive, because unlike some of the other Gospels, the actual birth of Christ is never actually part of this story. This story concerns the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, the beginning of the one who came to save. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we, dis- as we seek to understand this passage. We're going to see that God, in this passage, in Jesus, God is with us to save us. God is with us to save us. We're going to take on this story this morning in three parts. We're going to first look at the story itself and just seek to understand what's happening. Because we can really quickly read these details and just kind of skim over them because they're so familiar to us. Then we're going to ask the question, why does Matthew tell the story this way? What is the point he's trying to drive at? And then we're going to ask the question, what does this mean for us? How ought we respond to what we see of Jesus in this text this morning? I'm going to pray one more time for us before we read the scriptures. And then we're going to read our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray this morning for everyone in here, myself included, that as we come to your word and we hear your word, that it would not fall on hard, rocky soil. That the cares that we have from this week would not come and choke out our hearing of the word. That the desires of the things we have looking forward to in the week in front of us would not cause the word to shrivel and die. We pray that by your spirit you would create in our hearts fertile soil to hear your word this morning. That we would hear with ears that can hear and eyes that can see and hearts that can understand and believe. Lord, this is a a, a miraculous gift when you do this for your people. It is your spirit at work. And so I pray that your spirit would work through your word this morning and accomplish what you intend to accomplish. We pray in Jesus' name for his glory as we look and behold this picture of him. And we pray for our joy as we see him as God with us. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Very familiar story for us, friends, but let's look through it and notice some details. We have in verse 18, the setting of the story. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Mary and Joseph were betrothed to be married. And that might not mean much to you because we don't use that language. It's kind of like engagement, but it's much more serious. For a typical Jewish boy... They would be betrothed to be married, promised to be married to someone at about 18 or 20, between there. For a typical Jewish woman, she would be promised to marry someone between 12 and 16. So Mary at this time was probably between 12 years old and 16 years old. Some of you are that age right now. And Joseph was between 18 and 20, and they were promised to be married. In this arranged marriage, their parents had come together and said, We believe Joseph can take care of Mary and has something to offer. And so we're going to pair them up and he's going to be her husband and she will be his wife. In Jewish society, the betrothal period was about a year where the husband and wife didn't live together and they didn't really even spend time alone together. They spent time in the context of family before finally they would come together which means they would move in together and the marriage would be official and it would be celebrated and they would consummate their marriage and sexual union. Before all this stuff had happened, during this betrothal period where they were legally considered married but not yet come together, Mary is pregnant. The end of verse 18. When all of this stuff had happened, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew generously tells us right away it's from the Holy Spirit. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. This young 18, 19 year old man, ready to start his life with his new bride that his family has purchased for him with the bridal price. And all of a sudden she is pregnant. The only logical explanation is that she has been unfaithful. That she is an adulteress. And can you imagine the kind of turmoil that put Joseph in? See, the text says that Joseph is a just man, in verse 19, or a righteous man, we might say. And for a righteous man in Judea at the time, the right response to adultery is some kind of divorce and punishment. Deuteronomy would have called for stoning of the guilty party would have called to kill Mary by casting rocks at her till she died. Under Roman rule, though, Jews weren't able to actually execute anyone without the government's permission. So they developed a practice instead of divorcing someone and putting them to public shame, calling them out in the square, spitting on them maybe, or doing things like that, ruining them because of the seriousness of the sin of adultery. Joseph is a righteous man, and so he's seeking to follow what God's law requires. And God's law says he should not marry this adulterous woman. He's seeking to avoid the shame of this heinous sin. And this child that would be tainted with the shame of adultery for the rest of his life. 
But the scriptures also say that Joseph is a righteous man in seeking to show mercy to Mary. Because what Jewish law allowed for was that though public shaming was the right thing to do in this case, which is hard for us to comprehend because it doesn't make sense to us. Though that was the right thing to do, there was this option that Joseph had. And that's what he chooses. It says in verse 19, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Unwilling to do that public shaming part. Resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph could maintain his righteousness if he sought a quiet divorce with two other witnesses and put Mary aside as an adulterous woman. This would have been a good thing to do in the eyes of the law. Joseph was seeking to save himself and his family from the shame, and he sought to be merciful to Mary by saving her from further shame. This was a godly young man. Just think about an 18, 19-year-old trying to handle this kind of pressure. I can't imagine it. And yet here we have Joseph handling it well in a godly way. He even sleeps on it. Verse 20. Joseph is visited in a dream. And why is he dreaming? Because he's sleeping. Trying to decide what to do. He's considering these things. And God intervenes in the midst of his considerations. As Joseph has a plan to save himself and to save Mary, God comes and messes things up a little bit. Through the angel, God comes and says, Joseph, do not be afraid. Verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What? From the Holy Spirit? Like We, we think like, yeah, Jesus from the Holy Spirit. We know that. Joseph had no category for this. What on earth does that mean that the, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit? Joseph certainly knew that meant that it was from God somehow. But he doesn't know what all that means. The angel explains by telling Joseph what he ought to name the child. It says in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child from the Holy Spirit shall be named Jesus, which is the Greek version of the name Joshua, which is an English kind of transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. This was a popular name back in first century Palestine and and, and Judea because the hope was that Yahweh would come and save his people. And so the angel is saying to Joseph, I am commanding you on behalf of the Lord God, name this child Jesus, which wouldn't have been that abnormal, but listen to the reason for verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. This might have got Joseph's brain juices clicking along thinking, what's uh, save his people from their sins? What's that mean? What's that calling for? As he pondered these things. Matthew tells us, he fills us in a little bit with some background information from the book of Isaiah. He says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill What the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
We're going to look at that in a second when we ask, why does Matthew write this? What does he mean by it? For now, just know that that means, according to Matthew, God with us. Joseph wakes from sleep, verse 24, and what does he do? He changes his plan completely because the angel of the Lord had come and visited him and had told him that this child is somehow from God and going to save his people from his sins, whatever that means, and that Joseph ought not to fear but to take Mary as his wife. And so what does Joseph do? He doesn't send her away with her certificate of divorce. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph obeys the angel, and we have Jesus named and adopted. Why does Matthew tell the story this way? We're used to the story from Luke, which gives us the perspective of Mary and talks much more about her visit from the angel and the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. And then we, and then we read the birth narrative even and things like that. We don't have that in Matthew. We just have this story. And then we have the visit of the Magi come next. Why does Matthew tell the story this way? If we look at verse 22, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is the first instance in Matthew of fulfillment language. Matthew repeatedly says, this took place to fulfill this. This took place to fulfill this. This concept in Matthew is extremely important. And every time he brings that up, the story that he tells around it is centered on this idea of fulfillment. And so in order to understand why Matthew is telling this story and what fulfillment means, we need to look backwards a little bit. We're going to do that because there's a common way that we misunderstand the words, all this took place to fulfill. Often we think of it in terms of this is a prophecy about Jesus and this took place in this way so that you can know that this is actually Jesus, right? This took place to fulfill so that you can know that this indeed is the Messiah. And that's true, but that's a really limited understanding of what Matthew means by fulfilled. So we're going to go and see how does Matthew mean that all of this took place to fulfill what God spoke to his people long ago. We know that this prophecy is from Isaiah chapter 7. If you look back in the genealogy for a second before you flip to Isaiah, you'll notice that in verse 9, there's a king mentioned. It's not Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and it's not Jotham, but it is indeed Jotham's son Ahaz. Ahaz is the king that this prophecy is given to. And so we're going to turn back and look at that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. So now, if you want to get back to Isaiah chapter 7, we can take a look. Isaiah chapter 7. The first verse of Isaiah chapter 7 says, In the days of Ahaz, there's that name, Ahaz the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. This is Matthew 1, 9, in that time period. In those days, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So what's happening during this time period is you have these Multiple kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Judah, which is the small remnant of God's faithful people in the south, 
in the land of Israel. And you have Ahaz as king over that small kingdom, which includes Jerusalem. And then north of Ahaz, north of that small kingdom, you have the kingdom of Israel as a whole. And the kingdom of Israel as a whole is led during this time by Pekah, the son of Ramaliah. And then in addition to that, up north of Judah, you have the kingdom of Syria, another large kingdom in that time period. And Reason is the king of Syria. And the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdoms of Syria were being threatened by another large kingdom, the kingdom of Assyria. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to join forces with Judah. But Judah said, I don't want a part of this war, Ahaz said on behalf of Judah. And so Pekah and Reason were going to come down and bring their armies down and overthrow Judah and depose King Ahaz and put a king in there who they wanted, who would help them against Assyria. And when this news came that Syria is in league with Ephraim, another name for northern Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He was concerned. Ahaz was facing oppressors and enemies, and his kingdom was threatened. And he was concerned for his kingdom and his people, and the hearts of his people, they shook like trees. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and said, don't fear. Because guess what? I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you and not long from now, there will be no one left in the kingdom of Syria. And there will be no one left in the kingdom of Israel. And you will be saved. Comforting words for God's people. Do not fear because I will deliver you. But Ahaz did not want to trust the Lord that he would deliver him. Ahaz had a brilliant idea. What if we go and pair up with Assyria against Syria and Israel? And then we attack them, and then Assyria lays waste to them, and we're safe, and they can have all the loot. We don't care. We just don't want to be threatened by them. And Ahaz thought, this is a great idea. And God had told King Ahaz through the prophets, do not go to the foreign ruler Assyria for help. Do not go to other foreign rulers like Egypt for help. Trust in the Lord your God to deliver you. And Ahaz said, no, I don't want to do that. And so, as Ahaz looks to Assyria instead of Yahweh for help and deliverance, the prophet Isaiah says this on behalf of the Lord. Isaiah seven ten. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God offers to affirm his word that he will deliver his people. And look what, Isaiah, look what Ahaz says. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. It's good not to put God to the test. We know that from his word. But Ahaz is not really here being pious. He's pretending to be pious because he doesn't want to trust in the Lord. He wants to trust in the kingdom of Assyria. Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And look what happens. Verse 13. The Lord says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to worry men that you worry my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's our prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The idea behind this is that God will give this sign that there will be a miraculous birth and that before this child who's born miraculously will be old enough to discern bad from good, the kingdoms that Ahaz fears will have fallen. But God says, that's not all. I'm going to bring on you these days that you have not seen since when the kingdom of Israel originally split off from the kingdom of Judah. These days of turmoil that are going to come, and they're going to come because of Assyria. What we see here is that Yahweh will save his people, but he will judge their unbelief. This prophecy teaches us that salvation could not come from within Judah because their foe was too mighty. Their oppressor was too powerful and they stood no chance against him. Salvation had to come from outside and Ahaz said, let's look to Assyria. And Isaiah said, no, we need to look to Yahweh. Salvation always comes for God's people from God's presence with his people. And that's what this promise was. This child to be born miraculously named Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us means God with us. It was a promise for God to be with his people, to preserve them. And the birth of this child was a sign that this had come. A little later in chapter 8, we read this. Chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason in the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There we have, again, God with us, Emmanuel. And what we see here is that God is with Israel, but he's with Israel to, or he's with Judah to bring Assyria into Judah, even up to the neck, even up to Jerusalem, which happens when God's people experience his judgment. God is with his rebellious people to judge, but this isn't the final word of this prophecy either. Verse 9 says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. It's the same Emmanuel that's been translated Emmanuel. It's the God is with us. Why should the nations take counsel, but all of their plans will come to nothing? Because God is with his people. What we see here is that God is with his people to judge their unbelief. And yet because of the covenant promises that God has for his people, he is with them to save as well. He's with them to bless. Judgment will not be the final word on God's people. We see in chapter 9 the great promise of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The one promised. And Matthew picks up on all of this with a single quotation. So we can turn back to Matthew. Matthew picks up on all of this when he says in verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Ahaz's day, this prophecy saw partial fulfillment. There was a child born, and the land of Syria and the land of Israel did indeed fall because Assyria came and swept all of it away. It's possible that the son that was born was Isaiah's son. We read that in Isaiah chapter 8. We're not sure. But there was a partial fulfillment. But that was not the fullness of God's promise to be with his people to both judge their unbelief and rescue them from their unbelief. Last week we talked about Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we said all of these things come together to show us that in Jesus, God is keeping and fulfilling all of his promises. And that's the kind of fulfillment we think of when we think of fulfilling prophecy. That's the kind of fulfillment Matthew is talking about. I said when I, when I read my summary sentence of Matthew, it started with Jesus, the Messiah King, climatically fulfills the Old Testament. That's what this is talking about. Jesus, the Messiah King here, is climactically fulfilling this Old Testament promise that there will be born a son who will be named Emmanuel and will be God with us. See, prophecy in the Bible is like a mountain range. When you go up to a mountain range, as you're far away, it all looks super flat, right? It all looks one height. And then as you get closer and start to see the mountains more clearly, you can see that some mountains are closer than others. And some are taller than others. And there's valleys in between. When God fulfills his promises, he's talking about a way of acting with his people over time that always climaxes in the saving promises of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here. All of these prophecies of Isaiah 7 are climaxing in Jesus Christ. How does Jesus' birth then fulfill Isaiah 7, 14? Firstly, we see that worldly oppressors come and go. The kingdom of Syria, the kingdom of Assyria. Later, it'll be the kingdom of Babylon. In Jesus' day, it was the kingdom of Rome. All of these worldly oppressors come and go, but there is one oppressor that is constant. There is one oppressor that is steady of God's people, and that is sin. We see in Jesus' name, Yahweh saves He will save his people from their sins. We see this oppressor taken on. This is a constant oppressor of God's people because sin is the enemy within. The enemies without will change, especially if you move or flee or run away. But even if you run to the farthest corners of the earth, the enemy within is still with you. The oppressor of sin is still there. Jesus came to save from this true enemy. He's fulfilling the promise that he will be God with us to deliver by defeating this true enemy. Because this enemy is within God's people, salvation can't come from within. No matter how many sons of David were born, you would never find one that was born without sin if it came from the flesh of David. Because there's always going to be sin in people born of the seed of Adam. It took a second Adam, a new creation, a new humanity, and it took coming from the Holy Spirit. Salvation must come from outside of us, and it did, because Jesus himself came into Mary, how? From the Holy Spirit. 
He came from the Holy Spirit to confront the true enemy, and he did that by being God with us. Salvation still comes to God's people. We are still delivered by God with us. Jesus is God, being from the Holy Spirit, right? But he's also with us, being from Mary. This text teaches very clearly that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. And that was our only hope for salvation because we needed a God to be with us in order to save us. And we needed it to be God with us. We must have a deliverer who is both divine and human in order to truly defeat this evil enemy of sin. Jesus at the cross as both God and God with us defeats this enemy once and for all and delivers his people. This is what this prophecy is talking about. This is how it is fulfilled that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew's point in saying all of this is that Jesus himself is the true king who will save us from our sins by being God with us. Jesus himself is the true king who will save us from our sins by being God with us. That's what Matthew is teaching here. He's showing us who this king is and asking us, what will we do in response? What should we do with this information that Jesus himself is the true king, God with us to save us? The problem is God with us is not always good news, right? God with Ahaz wasn't exactly good news. It was kind of a mixed bag. Because of Ahaz's unbelief, God was with him to judge, and Assyria was actually worse than Syria and Israel. God with us is news that is either comforting, comforting or condemning, depending on our response to that news. If we respond with sinful rebellion and remain unrepentant, then the news that God is with us is terrifying. This is what we see in Revelation when we see Jesus coming mounted on a war horse with a sword of the word running out of his mouth to slay his enemies. God with us is not good news for those that hate God. So what do we do with this news? We must respond with repentance and belief. Joseph himself gives us a model of what that response looks like. Joseph himself faithfully responds to this news that God will be with him to save him. Remember what he does. Immediately after he wakes from sleep, he goes and does as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he names him Jesus. Joseph believed God's word. Joseph believed when the angel said, this child is from the Holy Spirit, and therefore Mary is innocent. Joseph believed that. Joseph believed when the angel said, this child, you'll name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from his sins. Joseph trusted in that promise. His faith led to costly obedience. He gave up his own attempts at saving himself from the shame of being married to an adulterous woman. He even took on shame by marrying her. Why did he do that? 
Why would Joseph give up his plan to do what was righteous according to the law and take on the shame of being married to an adulterous woman and take on the shame of having a firstborn child born out of an adulterous affair? He knew that that wasn't the case, but the village around him sure didn't believe that. What would make Joseph do that? It's because he believed the word of the angel that said, this baby is here to save you from a greater enemy than your own shame. This baby is here to save you from your own sins. Because Joseph believed in the promise that this baby would be God with him, he knew that he could face even future shame. He knew that he did not have to be afraid And so he chose to give up his plans to save himself and instead entrust himself to Emmanuel. The adoption of Jesus at the end shows the magnitude of his trust. When Joseph names Jesus at the end, verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. That's Joseph officially, legally adopting this child as his own. This is Joseph bringing Jesus into the line of David as a son of David. And as adopting this child born from a shameful circumstance, according to the world, Joseph was himself putting all of his eggs in this basket. In naming Jesus, it's almost like Joseph himself is confessing Jesus. Yahweh saves, not me. Joseph, in doing all of this, proved to be a much better son of David than King Ahaz was. He responded to the word of the Lord with faith and obedience. As he does this, not only does it show us what it ought to look like for us to respond, but I noticed this when I was thinking about it last night. Joseph's response also shows us what it looks like for Jesus to be God with us saving us. Joseph himself, in how he treats Mary, is a picture of the gospel for us. Joseph marries Mary. And what does that mean? He takes on the shame of being associated with a woman accused of adultery. And he rescues her from a life of destitution. Because guess what? That would stick her entire life. And she would have no hope of ever being married again, most likely, And once her parents died, she would have no option but to be a beggar. And so what does Joseph do? He believes the word of the Lord and he comes alongside her and takes on her shame on himself and rescues her from the unjust judgment of the world. In a similar way, friends, what Jesus does in the gospel, by being Emmanuel, God with us, he takes on our shame on himself. But guess what? It's not shame of someone falsely accused. The bride of Christ is adulterous. Jesus, as the true son of David, takes on our shame that is rightly deserved for the ways we have constantly committed adultery against him. And what does he do? He marries us anyway. He brings us near and he marries us. And in marrying us and bringing us near, guess what he does? The word promises that he purifies his bride with his word. Isn't that amazing? Jesus does what we would not dare to do 
Joseph gives us a tiny picture of that in doing it for a wife that's not really guilty, but Jesus does it for a bride that has every, every right to be divorced. And instead, he brings us near. Friends, we have to learn to have the kind of faith in that Savior who brings us near that Joseph himself had. We have to learn to give up all of our own attempts to save ourselves from sin and shame because none of it will work. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ himself who is present with his people, with us, to save us. We have to accept the scandal of the way God works to save his people. Power and weakness, what does that mean? Repentance, forgiveness, the cross, all of this is foolishness to a world that is perishing. But to us is the power of God for salvation. It looks scandalous, just like it looked scandalous for Joseph to marry Mary. It looks scandalous for us to trust by faith in a Savior who is crucified. But friends, that is our only source of hope. We must, just like Joseph, put all of our hope in God with us to save us. This makes all the difference for the disciples in Matthew. As they walk through and repeatedly are chastised, O you of little faith. The difference that is made is that Jesus is with them and helps them in their little faith. This makes all the difference for the disciples after Matthew. Because what happens at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, Jesus sends his disciples out on mission into the world. And what does he tell them? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He fulfills this promise to be with all those who trust in him forever. How does he do it? We see at Pentecost, the spirit is poured out on God's people. And just like Jesus was birthed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is birthed in your and my hearts through the action of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that God is with us in Jesus Christ still now. This is our precious promise as well for the future. That one day God will be with us. Revelation 21 puts it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared what? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's what we have to look forward to. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, Yahweh saves, who is here to save us from our sins, our own sins. And bring us near by being God with us. We have that to look forward to. Being a purified bride coming down from heaven and being joined with our Savior forever and ever and ever. Trust in that this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, it is overwhelming to consider that you would bring a guilty bride near and yet you do 
And yet you do. Lord, it is too good to believe at times. I pray that you would help us. Help us by faith to trust that you have indeed brought us near. That you indeed do not cast out all who come to you. And that you do indeed purify us as a bride, spotless because of your work. Nothing that we can do. I pray that you would help us trust in those promises. And I pray that you would help us then learn to be like Joseph and showing others that same kind of mercy. Would you help us now as we come to your table to come in full assurance of faith, we pray. Amen.